Hello, everybody. Welcome to the College Hoops Chat Show. I'm your host, Jim Maysano. We are your weekly college basketball podcast released every Monday night. You can find all of our episodes on our website, collegehoopschat.com. Plus, you can also find College Hoops Chat on Spotify and Apple Podcast. And please follow us there. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hey, Iona fans. Iona is playing in the 2023 Gulf Coast Showcase this week down in Florida near Fort Myers. The Gales are playing three games in three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. The games can only be watched on flowhoops.com. Unfortunately, the Gales lost the first game on Monday morning to High Point 82 to 68. The Gales just ran into a team that shot the ball great, and they fell behind in the second half by about 20 points and just couldn't make a comeback. It was disappointing to see that Iona's full-court press, something Coach Anderson takes great pride in, just didn't have any impact on high point, and sometimes even led to defensive breakdowns that led to easy shots and easy points for high point. But, as we all know, we said from the beginning this season that there was going to be struggles, particularly in the month of November, with a brand new coach and 12 new players. And this game was the first one where the Gales just played poorly. But let's point out that Osborne Chema, being out with the injury to start the season, he hurt his knee during practices. This is a big blow to the Gales. Shema is an athletic seven-footer who shoots well, plays strong defense, and is an imposing force in the paint. He's expected back in December. He's the only player back from last year's team. And frankly, the Gales really need Osborne Shema back. Anyway, the Gales got a bad loss versus High Point. But let's just hope they can regroup and win the next two games down in Florida this week. Okay, before we interview our guests, I want to mention that I was really impressed with UConn, who crushed Indiana on Sunday at Madison Square Garden, 77-57. to The Huskies were better than the Hoosiers in every way. Had more energy, much better ball movement, shooting, defense. UConn Huskies played great. Here's some stats to make Husky fans feel really happy, and Hoosier fans not feeling so well. Rebounds. UConn won 44-22, and an assists 19-6. I mean, those are stats. When a team leads that much by rebounds and assists, you are going to win big, and they won by 20. UConn looks like a Sweet 16-type team this year. They're really good, but they do need their freshman and sophomore guys to step up for the depth. UConn just doesn't have the incredible depth they had last year on their national championship season, but it does look like the young players performed very well against Indiana on Sunday. Also, the St. John's Red Storm was very busy this past week. They played four games in one week with mixed results. They are now 3-2 and two on the season. A week ago, they played Michigan. It was a poor game for St. John's. They lost 89-73. Michigan just had a terrific night. They played really well. Then on Thursday, down in Charleston, they played North Texas. It was a really good game. It was a close game back and forth, but the Red Storm really pulled out a nice victory, 76-70 against North Texas. Remember that North Texas won the NIT last year. They're a really good team. Friday afternoon was not so good for St. John's. Uh, they lost to Dayton, 88-81. Dayton was the better team that day, and they played really well, so Atlantic 10, watch out, but St. John's had a tough time with Dayton. And then on Sunday, real nice bounce-back win for St. John's. They beat Utah 91-82. to I believe they were the underdog. These three games, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday, were played down in Charleston, the Charleston Classic, and it was a nice win to close out that tournament for St. John's by beating a, a very good Utah team. Lastly, let's just check in on our friends, the James Madison Dukes, who we covered on last week's show. 
Well, they won again on Friday night. They're still unbeaten. They beat Radford 76-73, and they're 4-0. Go Dukes. Okay, I'm Jim Misano, the host of Kyle Troops Chat. Let's go chat with our guests. Okay, folks. Our first guest tonight is Eamon Brennan, who is somebody that's in his career written for ESPN and The Athletic about college basketball. He now has a college basketball newsletter called Buzzer on Substack, which I'll let him tell you about. And welcome to the show, Eamon. Jim, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So tell everybody how they can find Buzzer. Yeah, sure. So you can just go to eamonbrennan.com. Um, that's uh, probably the easiest way to find it. It's um, it's also on Substack. So people who you know already read other people on Substack can just go on there and search my name and, and find it that way as well. It's eight dollars a month for a subscription. It's all it all goes to me. It's independently written with a lot of perspective and hopefully a lot of um, insight. And yeah, I, we launched in June. Pretty good response at the start, and we're ramping up into the college hoop season right now. And it's been really satisfying to see people kind of find me and figure out where I'm at and and come over and and follow enthusiastically. So excited with how it started. It's young, but uh, you know, small but mighty, and and it's going going pretty good. And I'm excited to be here and excited to uh, chat about um, whatever college hoop stuff we want to cover. Great. So. I remember you at The Athletic uh, covering some ACC, in particular UVA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a North Carolina fan, so uh, I, I also pay attention to the, all of the ACC. And frankly, you did a really good job there. And then I followed you over to Substack, and you're doing a great job there. And the thing that wanted me to invite you on the show is that you did just a fabulous article about Bobby Knight. One of the very best pieces I read, and I probably read 10 pieces when Bobby Knight passed. Yours was the best. Uh, why don't you tell people about that article? Sure. Yeah. So I wrote about you know something that has been rattling around in my head for a pretty long time. I went to Indiana. Um, I got there after Bob Knight, but I grew up in the Midwest, very much fascinated by him and also recognizing in him a lot of the qualities of my own father. And I think, you know, my father had a huge admiration for Bob Knight. They were pretty similar in terms of their life trajectory. They were both born in you know, poor rural parts of the Midwest. They both spent time in the military. They both, I think, bought into sort of military ideas, applying that to day-to-day life um, and particularly sports. My dad wasn't a coach, but he was very intense about my youth sports as a kid to, um, I think, the detriment of our relationship. And I think, you know, that experience led me to kind of write about where I, I would sort of place Bob Knight, I guess, sociologically in that I think he was an avatar for a lot of people of a certain way of being from prior generations that is frowned upon. And I think there are a lot of people that um, admired him, not just because he was a great basketball coach or because he revolutionized the sport because he was a just a total icon of the game, which all of which is true, or because he impacted a lot of young men's lives and a lot of people have positive things to say about, about their impact on him and all these things that everybody else has covered. I also think uh, sort of where he sits in like American culture from the 20th century is what makes him also so interesting to so many people. Absolutely. So the first thing I thought reading this article about Bobby Knight, and everybody should go uh, to com and read the article about Bobby Knight, is that it wasn't just Bobby Knight and your dad, but happens to be my dad and like hundreds of thousands of dads and uncles and relatives. We all had people in the family that kind of acted that way. You know, they came from a different world, a different generation. My father and my grandparents grew up in the Depression or came over as immigrants. They faced things I can't even fathom. And 
you know, they had a toughness to them that's maybe not acceptable these days, but it's real. It happened. And that's how they were. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there is a certain, you know, part of it is, you know, I think where I grew up in the Midwest, there's a big value placed on stoicism and on not demonstrating your emotions really well if you're if you're male. And so there's this kind of difficulty of relating to people like that when the only sort of emotional expression you get out of them is anger and temper. Um, and I think, you know, Bob Knight was like the biggest temper in America for a long time. And I think sure. because, as I wrote in the piece, I think because he was so good at his job, just so glaringly better at his job than anybody else doing it for such a long time. And because he was also smart and funny and charismatic, uh, and he rode the line between what was acceptable and what was comedic, there were a lot of people that could identify with him in a way that they could never get away with in their own day-to-day lives. And I think you the, the downsides of that are, you know, you hold grudges and you don't work things out with people and you you're so proud that you can't admit when you're wrong. And, you know, towards the end of his life, um, Bob Knight had an interview where he talked about, you know, he he essentially admitted like, yes, I, I do realize that sometimes I'm not right. And he like gets choked up saying it. And it's like, why right. is this so difficult for you to say? And my dad had that as well. He was a very stubborn guy. And, you know, if you got in a fight with him, it wasn't going to be easily resolved most of the time. And it wasn't something where you could take five minutes, walk back into the room, talk it out and get over it. it you know, a grudge needed to be held or, or you know, an apology needed to be made. And, and that affects relationships over the long term. And so I think it, it affected my relationship with my dad. And I think it affected, you know, Bob's not Bob Knight's career. Like it, it, it caused him to be sort of torn out of Indiana before he was ready to go. It caused a huge amount of trauma to that program and that fan base. And, you know, Indiana has essentially spent, you know, a decent chunk of the last 23 years, basically in the wilderness, basketball-wise, trying to find its identity post-Bob Knight. And all that stuff could have been avoided if the guy was a little bit more reasonable and a little bit less stubborn and a little bit more willing to understand that times had changed and what was acceptable had changed. And that when you make a mistake, you just apologize for it and move on. Right. Well, you made the point. Others made the point. I literally thought of it myself when Bob Knight passed away. But there's this massive oddity with the man. And that is he demanded discipline and yet couldn't really be disciplined himself at times, which is one of the oddities of the man. But he's a legend. You know, to this day, when I'm interviewing coaches, they talk about the Bobby Knight motion offense. He, you know, totally innovated the sport. He's one of the great minds in history of the sport. And um, you really did a great job. So folks, go to amonbrennan.com and read the article of Bobby Knight. It was terrific. All right, let's talk about some college basketball going on right now. Yeah. The first thing I want to mention to you is you wrote another great article about Kentucky, kind of the fans getting their team back. So I watched that game against Kansas like you did, and I had similar feeling. And the one thing I was struck by was how loose and free freshmen played. Uh, They weren't nervous. They were playing the number one team in the nation. They weren't nervous at all. They took it right at them. Dillingham in particular and Shepard, I thought the freshmen were terrific. I was really impressed with Kentucky. And look, they've had one tough game so far and they didn't win it. So I still think we have to see more of Kentucky. And their best freshman, which is DJ Wagner, did not play well in that game. Other guys stepped up. But I liked your angle of the articles. It looks like this is a team that will kind of refresh the Kentucky fans. Is that fair? Yeah, that's the that's the big thing. I mean, I think it's it's been so interesting the last couple of years to see Kentucky fans sort of kind of quietly 
maybe not so quietly falling out of love with John Calipari because most of my, you know, I, I started at ESPN, you know, I, I worked for Yahoo for um, a couple of years writing about college basketball. Um, but sort of my first year at ESPN was uh, 2009 and he took the job at Kentucky that year, the year after, and basically like revolutionized the sport almost overnight and revolutionized the way you recruit and the amount of talent you could get on one team. And for five, six years was just this unstoppable force and just totally beloved by Kentucky fans. And, you know, the last half decade has been a lot more uh, average with a couple teams that have not been very good at all. And a team that got upset by the number 15 seed in the tournament in the first round um, that had the national player of the year. And, you know, a team like last year that was just very average and, and above all, very sort of outdated stylistically, like tons of mid-range shots, very few threes, not as much stuff at the rim as, as you'd like. And you, you've got a team like Alabama and a coach like Nate Oates who comes into the SEC and starts running this hyper-modern offensive stuff. And Kentucky fans are sitting there looking at it being like, what are we doing here? Like, you know, th- this is we're like eight, nine years behind the curve here. And, and Kentucky under Calipari was always ahead of the curve. And so I think it's really fascinating that Kentucky fans got to that point. And then now are having basically not having these expectations at all coming into the year, are now looking at a team and a coach who has completely rewritten what he's willing to do offensively. He's got his team not just taking threes, but like chucking and getting up and down the floor extremely quickly. And he has you know, in part because of the way the roster is right now and the lack of true bigs um, due to injury and eligibility issues. You know, he's got Mitchell playing at the five most of the time, and that's a guy who can shoot threes and, and stretch the floor. So he's basically playing five-out offense with a bunch of young kids who can shoot. He's gone back to having a ton of freshmen punctuated by a little bit of veterancy as as opposed to the last few years where he um, went into the transfer portal and tried to get, you know, he'd have one or two stud freshmen and, and mostly older guys. And it's just like, it feels like a combination of going back to what he was doing early in his career in terms of personnel and mixing it with a totally new willingness to play a different style of basketball. And I think that's just what Kentucky fans absolutely needed. Like they needed to feel like their coach and their program is sort of at the top of the game and thinking about things in a modern way. And that things have gotten so static in the last few years that it's, you know, as a total neutral, non-interested party here, it was extremely refreshing for me just to see, see a Kentucky team that's like, Oh man, I'm, I want to watch this team play basketball this year. This is going to be really fun. My exact feeling. I watched the Champions Classic and I thought uh, Duke and Michigan State was kind of a sluggish game. Duke clearly was the better team, a sluggish game. But of the four teams that played, I was most impressed with Kentucky for many of the things you laid out. Uh, I just thought that the athleticism, uh, how they attacked Kansas, how they didn't make a lot of mistakes which I thought was interesting. They were very impressive. So I want to see Kentucky as well. We didn't mention one player. I didn't really know much about him for that game. I have to tell you, I know he was a backup last year. Adu Thiero, mm. he played terrific against Kansas. He's actually having a pretty good year, nine points a game. He looks like somebody will be a difference maker for them too. You know, they just had some guys buried on the bench last year uh, that didn't play much, but doesn't mean they weren't big recruits. Yeah, for sure. And I think... No, he looked really good. Really interesting sort of athletic wing. Not a guy who's going to shoot it a lot, but is great sort of attacking in space, which it seems like Kentucky's offense is going to provide a lot more of. And you think about it and it's like, you know, they they played in such a way that, you know, Justin Edwards had one point. DJ Wagner had four points. These guys are like their two best freshmen coming in and like top 10 picks, supposed lottery picks. And, they, you know, Kansas still needed Hunter Dickinson to have 27 and 21 and Kevin McCullough to have a triple double 
uh, and Dewan Harris to take kind of take over the game late. These are like established star college basketball players. Like there's a reason Kansas is ranked number one. And you got a bunch of really talented freshmen going in, getting up and down the floor, you know, getting threes up, getting rebounds. Um, it, it was a really impressive performance, even though they didn't win, just because based on expectations, I think even most optimistic Kentucky fans were coming into the season thinking, we've got a lot of talent. We got a lot of young guys. How are we actually going to play? Um, is Cal going to like let these guys play or is he going to go back to what he's been doing, you know, running floppy sets um, every time down the floor? And so far, so good. I agree. All right, let's switch teams. So you also wrote an article about Villanova. So let me just tee it up this way. I'm a little shocked by the drama over Villanova after four games. You know, there's this wing of Villanova fans uh, calling for the coach, Kyle Neptune, to be fired already, which to me is just absurd. Four games into the season. Sure, they had a not-so-great loss to Penn, but Penn is a good team. People are kind of underestimating Penn. They're not a bad team. They're a, a good team in a better Ivy than usual. And, uh, but it was a close game. They lost 76-72. But then they came back and they got a big win because they crushed Maryland. Their defense was terrific, or maybe Maryland couldn't shoot, but it was 57-40. Most people were beating up on Maryland, but it was a nice win for Villanova. So look, Villanova's got a lot of new pieces, a lot of transfers. They have some very good players. I actually think Villanova will be, you know, a 20-plus win team in the Big East that goes to the tournament, but there's been a lot of drama about Villanova in week uh, one and two. Well, look, I mean, we started the show talking about Bob Knight, and it is a very difficult thing to replace a legendary coach. And that's what Jay Wright is to Villanova. You know, the 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 level Villanova reached under Jay Wright is um, hard to replicate. It's hard to find guys like that. And every athletic director hopes they hire them. And how many of them actually get hired? You know, how often? Once every 10 years? Once every 20 years? Like, you just, they don't come around very often. and. There is, you know, the odds, I've said this about John Shire, who's doing, I think, a really good job at Duke, but like, think about what the odds are that John Shire ends up being as good of a coach as Mike Krzyzewski. Like, it's pretty long odds. Like, it's just, that's how it works. It's, it's, there's just, you know, there's a handful of guys, 10, 12 coaches, 15 coaches that you would put as like the best coaches of all time. And very few of them are, are working these days. And, and there's just, you know, so Maybe Kyle Neptune gets there. I think it is the difficulty is that as Villanova fans, they're they're gonna want the same level that they're used to. Like they are not gonna accept that Jay Wright retired and so we're just not gonna be as good anymore. No one's gonna accept it. And I think it's hard also when you have a guy who's handpicked by the guy that left. So it wasn't a, a coaching search. It wasn't, oh wow, we had X, Y, and Z candidates flying in and we wind and dined them and we figured out you know, who's the best young coach in the country or whatever. There's going to be skepticism there, especially given the way they the way they were last year, you know, 17 and 17 at Villanova after the Jay Wright era when they won a couple national titles in the last handful of years. It's just, you know, people are going to get antsy and worried. And so then, yeah, you, you turn around to lose the pen and those worries carry over. I do think it's probably worth keeping in mind that Jay Wright lost to Penn at Penn in 2019. You know, maybe a better, slightly better Penn team, but I, I agree with you that this Penn team's not that bad. They played well on the night. You know, local rivalry games and true road environments, like this kind of stuff happens. It's not the end of the world. So yeah, the, the Maryland performance was really important to follow up on. Maryland has issues, but I don't think they're as bad as they've played. And I don't think they were as, you know, I, I don't think they were bad. or I don't think they're as bad as they played against Villanova either. But yeah, Villanova's defense looked great. They looked they looked old. They looked veteran. They looked smart and physical. And 
kind of had that baseline level that you got to used to them under under Jay Wright, and now they just have to kind of figure out things on the offensive end and get rolling on on that end of the floor, shooting the ball, and we'll we'll see where they go from there. I think well, Villanova has a seven person rotation of very good college basketball players. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just a fact. Will Neptune be able to put them together to get you know twenty five wins and be a strong team in the Big East? Maybe. I don't know yet. We'll see. But they certainly have the players, I think, to make a run into the NCAA tournament this year. Yeah, agree. I mean, I think the one issue is is guard play. You know, at the at the true point guard spot, they they still I don't think they've totally cracked that position. But the way Villanova always kind of plays, um, you know, is is multi positional, and they move guys around a lot. And the you know wings like Justin Moore's, you know, he's going to have the ball in his hands a lot. At, you know, initiating offensive stuff. So it's maybe not the biggest deal in the world for them. But but no, I, I tend to agree. I think they've, they've got a really strong rotation. There's a lot there to like. It's just a matter of putting it together. And, and the status anxiety that comes with a young, unproven coach replacing uh, a legend that elevated the program to previously unforeseen heights, I think it's just part of the bargain. The question is, how sort of difficult does it get? Can Villanova get results? on the court to kind of ward it off. If not, then things will get a little wacky there. But, you know, if if you can put it together, they'll be okay. I agree. And and you mentioned probably the key name, which will decide how many wins Villanova has. That's Justin Moore. Because if Justin Moore plays like 2022 Justin Moore, they're going to win 20 plus games to go to the tournament. There's no doubt in my mind. You know, two years ago, he was a terrific college basketball guard. He seems like he's getting back there, but doesn't seem like he got all the way back yet. Yeah, and I mean, he missed a ton of time last year. You know, he only played in 13 games. So, um, yeah, he had kind of elevated to star status, and then he kind of went away most of last year. And, you know, he's he's one of these guys that um, you come into the season, you're like, oh, yeah, they still have Justin Moore. Like, no, of course they do, but uh, that's that's incredible considering how good he's been during his career and how old he is and and the injury redshirt, all that good stuff. So, yeah, no, I... He's he's massive for them, not just because of his scoring, but like we said, I think their their pure guard play is an issue where they they don't have a ton of depth there, um, and so he he needs to be uh, not just a scorer but an initiator and a guy who can get everybody involved in, in kind of the system that they want to play. I agree. I'm looking forward to following Villanova this year. I think this whole discussion we're having is going to be interesting to watch. All right, before we go, let me ask you two more questions. Two weeks into the season, give me a team that you've now seen and you were like, wow, this team's better than I thought and you can't use Kentucky. So give me another team that you looked at and you're like, wow, that team's really good. I think Virginia. Um, we mentioned them a little bit earlier. I think I, you know, one of the the last things I wrote at The Athletic before I left was with my colleague Seth Davis. We wrote about sort of what felt like an existential summer for Virginia. You know, they lose Caden Shedrick, who played really well in New York on Sunday against, uh, against Louisville. Um, you know, a guy they needed and, and kind of wanted to have around as their sort of veteran center, a guy they developed for a long time. Kind of had a little bit of a falling out, wasn't satisfied with playing time last year, kind of lost his spot midway through the season. So he leaves in the transfer portal. Um, and Virginia is the kind of place where losing guys in the transfer portal is like can, kind of considered a disaster. It's it's the kind of thing that, you know, Tony Bennett wants to build an old school basketball program with a lot of veterans who have been there for a long time, who all know how to play a very specific style. And so when you lose a guy, it's tough. And not only did they lose Shedrick, but this year they lost Isaac Trout, who was a red shirt, who was the highly highest recruited guy they had in, in the incoming class last season, decided to red shirt, got homesick, uh, decided to go back to to his home state of Nebraska, which is 
to play at Creighton. And so they basically developed a, a talented kid for a year, and then he left without ever playing a minute and putting on the uniform. Extremely frustrating from a Virginia perspective, right? And so they were looking at this season, and before they kind of got their portal work done, and back in the you know the time when it looked like Reese Beekman was going to be potentially a first-round NBA draft pick, and, and it would make sense for him to leave, you're sort of looking at Virginia being like, man, they, they don't have a lot on this roster. Like, they could be really bad next year. Um, but then Beekman comes back. Uh, they fill out the roster. They land Blake Buchanan. Um, who's immediately started as completely exceeded expectations. Isaac McNeely uh, is playing really well, sort of an off-guard shooter. You know, they haven't played anyone good yet, but their numbers look good. You know, they landed Andrew Rode uh, from St. Thomas, who had a really, really good freshman year. Ryan Dunn has turned into a, sort of the athletic, you know, monster that people assumed he was going to be. So they, they have a, a really interesting roster now. And and if, if Reese Beekman can kind of play at this level on both ends of the floor, you know, he's been really good offensively. Um, but not like shooting the ball super well, just a demon defensively. Uh, and so, yeah, Virginia has, you know, again, they played Florida. They beat Florida by three. I thought they looked pretty impressive. I thought Florida looked all right in, in, in that game as well. But then they've just taken apart everybody else they played in a way that gives me confidence that they're actually significantly better than, than people thought, particularly earlier in the summer when it looked like their roster was going to be kind of a mess. Good pick. And especially with the current ACC, which is good to very good, but not great as it's been, they can certainly make a lot of noise in the ACC. Yep. All right. So now give me one last team before we go. And that is some a team you saw and you're like, hmm, they don't look as good as I thought they were or the preseason analysis said they were going to be. Yeah. No, I'd say Duke. I think it's been interesting to watch Duke. Yeah, obviously, they had the loss at home to Arizona. And I don't think they played particularly well against Michigan State. I thought particularly in the first half, and you could see it on the broadcast, you know, they, they had the um, the timeouts mic'd up and John Shire's talking to guys like, you know, kind of kind of exasperated, like, you know, when so-and-so has the ball here, you got to get out of the lane. Like, what are you doing standing there? And it's clear that they just kind of haven't figured out their spacing yet. And so the ball gets really, particularly for a Duke team, which I kind of associate with, spaced out offense, really efficient stuff, stuff that makes a lot of sense that everybody's running in, in like synchronous fashion. Um, they've looked a lot, more sort of static and kind of blah on the offensive end. I, I think they'll get there. They're clearly very talented. I think the second half against Michigan State, you saw sort of the potential there. You know, Caleb Foster was excellent. And as long as you've got outside shooting and a guy like Kyle, Kyle Filipowski, like you're going to probably eventually get to the point where you have an efficient offense. But aesthetically, stylistically, they looked you know, young and they looked honestly kind of like the team that they were last year, which is eventually pretty good, solid defensively. Um, but nowhere near the kind of level of like when you think of Duke offense, um, no, not playing quite near that level. So we'll see where they go from here. Yeah, I tend to agree. I had them as my preseason number one. They would not be my number one today. But I also thought when I watched them play head to head with Arizona, when I turned off the TV, I thought Arizona was the better team. Not just mm. that they won. I thought Arizona was a better team. Yeah. No, yeah. And game planned extremely well. And, you know, able to execute a plan that was sort of perfectly suited to take away what Duke wanted to do on the offensive end. Yeah, what can you say? I mean, Tommy Lloyd's one heck of a coach, man. He he landed in Arizona having never been a head coach before and has made them, you know, immediately a powerhouse again. Um and this is the this is the kind of season where you think, oh, maybe they'll take a little bit of a step back. They, you know, they lost a lot from last year. They're kind of filling in some spots with transfers. Caleb Love is a guy they they picked up who 
you know, as you will know very well, did not have a good season last year, shot the ball approximately 800 million times, not particularly efficiently. Kind of an interesting, like, uh, is that is that the best you can do guard-wise in the portal? But, you know, this, again, looks like a team that's extremely balanced, really, really smart on both sides of the ball. We saw that at Duke. I agree. Yeah, they, they came away not like, oh, wow, they pulled off a crazy upset. Like, they came away being like, wow, Arizona's really good again. Exactly. So, love Caleb Love, by the way, and all North Carolina fans will always love him because of his two amazing performances against Duke in the end of the prior season. So you always love him. Uh, but last year's team is out of sync. But I do think he's in the right place in Arizona. Yeah, I mean, he, look, he's, he started well, um, not shot the ball well. I think he's like, you know, he's from three anyway. I think he's doing okay otherwise. But, you know, I mean, he's talked a lot about in this offseason about getting back to a place where he's not shooting that much. And um, last year was, yeah, it was a weird season for UNC in, on a, in a lot of different ways. And and, you know, you sort of saw that with him of like, you can kind of understand coming off the, the season that he had previously in the postseason that he had in those games against Duke and like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pull up from 25 feet off the dribble against Alabama. I'm going to do it 30 times. Um, and if you before you realize it, you're you're kind of torpedoing your your your, your team's offense. Um, right, he's right. talked a lot no, about getting, getting back to more a more reasonable level of of touches and, and, and shots. And I think, um, yeah, it seems like he's in the right place for it because he's not the guy there. He's yeah. one of the guys there. I think that's better for him. I agree. It was based on what you just said. Okay. Eamon, great job. Enjoy talking college basketball with you. Keep up the great work on eamonbrennan.com. And also people can find you just by searching for you on Substack. I'll be reading your articles. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. My pleasure. Thanks. Okay. Let's chat with our next guest, Joe Budzelik. Someone I met on Twitter, or X, whatever you want to call it. A very knowledgeable basketball fan. I'm glad we became friends. And I invited him on the show because Joe has a particular expertise in mid-major basketball, particularly in the Northeast. I thought it'd be fun to chat with him. He has a website. He's on Twitter a lot. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim, for having me. Happy to be on. It's an honor. Great to have you. Um, So why don't you tell people... I know you're a teacher and you're a coach in middle school. You went to UConn, which I found out tonight. So you're a Husky. Uh, Tell people about your website. Uh, So yeah, Stretching the Floor is just my avenue to kind of write about uh, the mid-majors in the Northeast, uh, mostly the New York City metro area. But I'm happy to kind of spread out to, as the season kind of develops, to focus on the mid-majors that are surprising that really not everyone's talking about. Um, So yeah. Just uh, And then my Twitter handle is uh, STF underscore NCAA. Um, and that's mostly all my thoughts are about just local mid-majors, uh, like in the Northeast, New York City, Philly, um, New England, that, that type of area. Yeah, and that, I've been doing this for about a year and a half now. Always loved mid-major basketball, but it's been really a joy to kind of have this grow and having a lot of fun with it. Great. Well, our show interacts a lot with mid-majors, as you probably noticed. We cover Iona because we're based in New Rochelle. We used to be a radio show in New Rochelle. Now we're a podcast because they're unfortunately the radio station closed down. But we also cover Fordham and A10 is like a high mid major, but a lot of good programs there, and that's been fun to cover the A10. And we've covered the MAC because of Iona, and uh, definitely talked about other teams like the Ivy League teams. So our show has covered uh, the mid majors in Northeast because we're a Northeast show. So I was looking forward to this chat. All right, so let me pose the initial question for our interview tonight. And that is, and let me do a caveat first. I know it's really difficult to answer this question in the second week of the season. Grant that. 
who do you think has a shot at being the FDU St. Peter's Northeast mid-major that wins a game in the NCAA tournament? Oh, that's a good question. It's hard not to be biased of like preseason bias right now, just because like you do your preseason prep and there's only been so many games played. Um, but I feel like the key of picking the next quote unquote FDU or St. Peter's, it, it has to be a mid-major that's in the area that's not necessarily totally talked about or not necessarily a team that made the tournament last year, for example. Um, but yeah, I have a couple teams in my mind across the local mid-major conferences that have been really impressing me so far, uh, not only just last few years, but then the start of this year as well. Um, so I'm happy to dive into a few of those if you wish. Sure. So, throw one out, Joe. Throw <laughs> one out at us. You know what? I guess I'll start with I'll start with my easy one um, because Princeton made the tournament last year. I don't want to talk about Princeton. Um, just Yale is the type of team where if you, if you look at all the metric stuff, like Ken Palm and all that stuff, they, they profile kind of as a high major team. They're like top 60, top 70 type team. But they are almost the same roster as last year, pretty much a brand new front court. But James Jones is entering his 24th year at Yale. He's done an incredible job lately. Uh, they've made the tournament three of the last five years. They obviously didn't make it last year as Princeton got in and strong defensive team. Oftentimes, if teams have strong defenses in the tournament, then they can make a run. That's We saw it with St. Peter's, obviously, with their defense, um, FDU with their press. So yeah, I the Yale's just a tough team. So far, they've beaten uh, pretty quality mid-majors. They beat uh, Loyola Marymount so far, um, and they just finished off uh, the Atlantic Slam where they beat Colgate and uh, Gardner-Webb and lost an OT to another really good mid-major Weber State out of Utah. They're big, they're talented, they're tough. Um, Mez Mbang is probably the one of my favorite point guards most people haven't heard of. He's like a 6'5", crazy length, like bulldog of like a, just a long point guard. So his just, name is Bez Mbang. Yeah, he's... Um, He's a junior. Uh, he's not the most gifted offensive player, but he could break down a defense. Um, he won the Ivy um, uh, Defensive Player of the Year award. So they, they've got shooters. Matt Nolling out of, um, he's a Connecticut guy. He's kind of like an undersized power forward who does really great work on the elbow and on the low post. And then they have two awesome shooters with John Pulakitas and August Mahoney, just knocked down three-point shooters. They've, I'm looking at their stats, Joe. A lot yeah. of guys are averaging double digits back this year, so that's great. For sure. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, I have them on my list of teams I want to see play. I keep reading about Yale being the strongest or one of the strongest Ivy teams. I haven't seen them yet, so I'm glad you're telling me about them. Yeah, my biggest question going into the year was their front court because uh, EJ Jarvis graduated, and then they had uh, one of their guys from last year transfer to Florida. So Danny Wolf, a sophomore, has really stepped up. He's He's like, I could literally, I mean, I don't know if he has the athleticism for it, but he has the skill set of a modern day NBA center, basically. He's a, he's a seven, seven footer, footer, right? Yeah, seven footer, double double candidate, only a sophomore. He could hit the three, smart for his age and a uh, really high basketball IQ. So they're a team that's pretty deep. Um, they just added a uh, Casey Simmons, a transfer from a Northwestern. He, I think he was like a top 150 recruit when he was at a high school. So they're a deep team. They're tough. They have a bunch of guys who could score. Um, if, uh, that's more my obvious pick just because um, in the Ivy, Yale has been really good lately. Uh, and they, they've won a few games in the tournament as well. Um, so they're like my, my more obvious pick for sure. A deeper dive, like I looking into the America East, like I love Vermont. Um, I could talk about Vermont all day as just one of my favorite teams. I'm, I'm not going to spend 
all my time talking about them because they're pretty well known. I think my favorite player on the team of their brand new uh, backcourt is Shamir Bogues. Uh, he's a transfer from Tarleton State, and he's just like a similar to Meg from a uh, from Yale, just like a six four, super aggressive, like the hardest working guy in the court. He could break down the D and just get to the basket, generate a ton of steals. Just a real hard nosed point guard. Um, he's awesome. And then obviously, since we're in the Mid East, uh, TJ Long, a transfer at a, at a Fairfield, has been doing a fantastic job for them. Uh, he's been averaging like 15 points a game and hitting threes. He had, a, he had a rough year for Fairfield last year in terms of his shooting efficiency, but he's really stepped it up at Vermont, which is not a shock just because John Becker, his teams have always kind of, uh, they've been very efficient at shooting, uh, limiting. They've been a great defensive rebounding team, so they're deep as well. But my, um, my pick that, uh, it, they're a team that really hasn't gotten a lot of hype at all, simply because they haven't been a D1 team for very long, as UMass Lowell. Entering his 10th year uh, with the program, Pat Duquette helped the team join uh, the D1 ranks, and then he earned a, an extension uh, last offseason. They, they have power five size. Uh, they, they don't have the strongest backcourt. Their leading scorer um, graduated, but they have a group of just forwards that are tough. Yeah, UMass Lowell, an- another team out of the America East as, as Vermont as well. They have a lot of potential. Um, they right. win the America. If they win the America East, I could I could see them scaring a few teams in the tournament. For so sure. Mass Lowell is interesting. You know, I barely even knew they were in Division One last season. Like that was like mm. a newish team. But I remember, you know, every night before I go to sleep, I check out Kempom, where he mm-hmm. go, has the listing of all the games uh, yeah. for that day and what he thought was going to happen and what actually happened. And I kept seeing Mass Lowell win. I'm like, this team must be pretty good. Every time I yeah. see them on Kempom, they're winning. So they had a really nice season last year, didn't they? Yeah, I wish I lived closer to that part of Massachusetts. It's, it's a bit of a hike because I would definitely catch them live for sure. So what made them so good last year? They were incredible at home, which doesn't really help you in the tournament, obviously. But they were 17-0 and at home. Wow. Um, and yeah, they were top 25 nationally in both uh, offensive rebounding block percentage. So they just they blocked a ton of shots. Um, and also uh, were top 25 in opponent uh, two-point field goal percentage. So they were just tough interior team so I, i'm i'm picturing purdue last year they they purdue lost the they were obviously a front court heavy team with a zach Eady. so i could see a team like a umass low of just like with their size inside they have abdul kareem uh, koulibaly for you i mean he was a uh he was a, he was a bonaventure transfer yes um, so he's he's really stepped up he's he's listed at six nine i but he has crazy long arms just a great hard to move low post guy Max Brooks is 6'7", 205, but probably the best shot blocker, one of the best shot blockers in the nation. Uh, he's blocking like five shots per 40 minutes. So he's in crazy leaping ability. And then Cam Morris is another uh, forward who's uh, 6'8", 205. He's averaging double digits right now, uh, six rebounds. They're just tough. Um, they were also a great shooting team last year. I think they shot like 38% from three last year. Right. All right, Joe, Stop. we're going to wind down now, but I want to say number one, I love the UMass Lowell pick because mm-hmm. I don't think anyone uh, knows just how good they are. Uh, well, you do, but and some people know, but most, I think, college basketball world is not quite sure about that program, so I'm glad you talked about them. I think Vermont and Yale are seen as top mid-major mm-hmm. teams, but I think they're better than people think. Yeah, v- Vermont is so well-coached. I'm shocked Becker is still there. Yeah. You know, I-, I can't believe he doesn't get picked up by a better program. 
it's amazing how long he's coached terrifically and not moved on. Everybody that I've talked to about Yale this season thinks they're going to be really good. So, so Yale does have a little bit of buzz behind them, but I'm dying to see Yale play. So get this, on December 2nd, your first and second picks play each other. It's Yale at Vermont on December 2nd, 7 p.m. That's a game you may want to go to, Joe. Burlington's beautiful. One of my best friends went to college up there. So I've, I've actually never been to a game at Patrick Gymnasium. So I would, uh, maybe I'll clear my schedule for a couple of <laughs> two weeks from now. All right, Joe, this was great. I enjoyed it. Before I let you go, give me a one minute analysis of Iona's chances to win the MAC this year. All right. I was watching the Sacred Heart Iona game, and it's easy to tell that they have a lot of new pieces. Obviously, they have 12 new pieces. We haven't seen Shima play. So they got to learn that defense. Obviously, it's the full court press. The MAC is a guard league, though. And I was watching, when you watch um, Trito play enough, he could break down the D. He's a lefty. He's a strong guard. So Tobin Anderson was able to win with dynamic, aggressive guards, but they were the shortest team in D1 last year. With his Iona roster, is bigger. He's never worked with a seven-footer before. He's never worked with a lead guard as strong as Trito. I, I think entering the year, I had Ryder as number one, but just seeing how quickly their new pieces, and especially their freshmen, have played as well. Um, I wasn't expecting Quigley to play as much as he has. He's a shockingly, like, calm point guard. Yes. Like, yeah, I never, like, I if I didn't know the team, their roster, I'd be like, oh, that guy's their, I don't know, their third-year point guard or something. The MAC doesn't doesn't really have a super strong team. Therefore, if you're an Iona fan, it's it's your season. Feel confident. The MAC will be fun this year. But yeah, I, Iona, I still think, is the team to beat in the MAC for sure. I think Iona has a great chance to win the MAC. But my take on the MAC as of today is there's probably eight different teams that could win the MAC this year. There's been so yeah. much turnover on the rosters. There's some excellent coaches in the MAC. I think it's going to be a very fun season to watch, as you just said. Yeah, make it down to Atlantic City to catch a tournament. There'll be a surprise team that makes it pretty far. Joe, great job. First of all, you should come down to an Iona game. We have extra tickets sometimes. We'll invite you. And uh, let's keep talking on Twitter about college basketball. And enjoy the season. Thanks for being on the show. All right. Thanks so much, Jim. All right. We're now going to start the final segment of the show. And that segment always includes the great Kenny from Rye, my buddy from grammar school and high school and ever since. And he's on every show. So hello, Kenny from Rye. James, how are we doing tonight? Doing very good. So Kenny from Rye, watched the Iona game today. I got flow hoops. I paid for it so I could watch the game. And what I watched was a blowout. High Point really took it to Iona. Very strong shooting display for the Panthers. 43% from three-pointer. They shot a lot of free throws and hit 87%. They shot pretty good from the field as well. They dominated the game. It was 82-68, but it was actually a bigger lead. Put about four or five minutes to go. And at the end of the game, garbage time, Iona caught up a little. But for a lot of the second half, Iona was down by 20. So I'm not upset about it because we all knew this was going to happen. Brand new coach, brand new assistant coaches, 12 new players. The only player back from last year, Osborne Shema isn't playing a, a very important seven-footer. So we knew there was going to be some bumps in the road. And as I said on Twitter today, this was a big bump in the road. They didn't play well. Uh, Iona's defense was not particularly good. The press did not disrupt High Point that well. And they also caught a team that shot the ball really well. 
And that can happen to any team in college basketball. So it's a, a bump in the road. Iona will be fine. Coach Anderson will get back in the gym. They'll learn from this loss. They got two more games coming up Tuesday, Wednesday this week. Hopefully they can grab two more wins and just move forward. Exactly. I think another thing, you know, we're always wondering what the perfect model is with regards to new players and transfers and freshmen. Uh, we clearly can realize very quickly here that getting 12 new players is probably not your best wish for any team going forward. And I think he was dealt that hand. So he had to build a roster from, from scratch. And I think that's part of the problem. As you said, his system is not an easy one to learn. He's got people from junior college, smaller programs, and I think that's very, very important. The question is, are they building on that? Do you see progressive steps to get to where it starts to matter for them when they get to the MAC games? And we'll have to see how that goes when they, when they get into the MAC season. That's a really good point. And I'll tell you what I saw today. In the last four or five minutes, he basically went with the freshmen, and they played well. They, they actually were the ones that kind of made the game a little closer. They ended up losing by 14. So the freshmen learned today. I thought they actually played a little better than the older players today. Again, it was the end of the game, what people call garbage time. But it was nice to see the freshmen out there for four or five minutes. And I think they probably learned a lot. And I think Tobin saw things that he can use going forward. I agree with you. And that's important is that he put them in for a reason. And that's to see what and who they are, the freshmen that we're speaking about. And so he'll take some of that away. And during practice, start to implement some of those players into the rotation, see who fits. I think he admitted that when you spoke to him in other interviews he's had. He doesn't know who the combinations are yet, and he's going to have to learn that from practice, but more importantly, from games. And so maybe this game is a good education for him uh, to figure out how to mix and match. Absolutely. All right, let's move to a different team, and that would be the Providence Friars. I believe you know about that team as an alum. They're four and one. Got some nice wins this week, beating Wisconsin, 72-59. They beat Georgia, 71-64. And they played a really close overtime game against a very good Kansas State game where they fell a little short. But your team is 4-1. and one. Kenny, the floor is yours to talk about the Friars. You know, I've, I've watched them where I could. It's, it's not that easy, obviously, in, because of the times and where they are and who they're playing. But I, I went back and looked at them in detail. And, and after seeing them in particular, the, the full game against Wisconsin, English has done a great job of bringing new players and old players together with a brand new offensive system to the team. Some people are adapting a little bit quicker than others. Hopkins is struggling a little bit with the shot. Odura is playing well, but Odura knows English, and you know he's a, he's the person that came over from George Mason. So it's very very interesting. But I hate to say it to you, but the best player on the court by far is thanks to the University of South Carolina is Carter. And if you get a chance to watch him, I think he's probably one of the better players in college basketball. And the reason why I say that is because. He's one of those guys, when he comes off the court, you immediately know it. Because when he was on the court, he was the best defender. When he's on the court, he's the guy getting the, the ugly rebounds, diving for balls. When he's on the court, he's making the tips, the passes, the, the right shots at the right time, using his body. And for someone, they say he's only six three and a half. He seems to play like he's six foot eight. So he is really, you know, I don't know how it transfers into the, to the pros, but I'm telling you, he is one of the better players in college basketball if you get a chance. He's averaging 17 points, seven and a half rebounds, three and a half assists, and 47% from the field. So you've got, you're looking at someone who's played very good teams and has played extremely well. So thanks to the University of South Carolina for that. Well, I'm glad my son's 
college could help out your Providence Friars. By the way, Kenny from Rye, shout out to the 5-0 and South Carolina Gamecocks. Last year was rough under a brand new coach, Lamont Paris, similar to what Tobin Anderson dealt with. Everybody was gone. He had to rebuild the program. He's 5-0. Yep. and They won the Arizona tip-off tourney. Uh, they're up to number 59 on Ken Palm. Uh, look, I get it. The SEC is going to be really hard on them. But the fact that they're 5-0 and is kind of nice. Pretty good wins. Virginia Tech, DePaul, Grand Canyon. So far, so good for the Gamecocks. I think it's important, as we mentioned, and I think college kids are much more susceptible to it, that success begets success, but it also goes the other way quickly as well because the season is not that long. We talked about this last year about Fordham. They didn't have a hard schedule, to say the least. They had a very, very easy schedule, but they hadn't won in years, so they had to learn how to win, and I think that's important for South Carolina. He had a tough start, and now he's saying, okay, let's teach these guys how to win, so let's put a schedule together. We can get some momentum going because, as you say, there's no easy games in the SEC. So he's got to get some momentum going. And I think that's extremely important because college kids can get down on themselves real quick and it can go south real quick as well. And we're, we're watching a little bit of that with Maryland as well now. If South Carolina wins like 17, 18 games or above 500 this year, second year for new coach Lamont Paris, that's a big win for them. No doubt. And particularly, as you say, in a very, very difficult SEC. All right, Ken, let's wind down here. What did you like about our guest? Well, I think it's great to get people on that are following not the stuff that is on the front page of every sports page. I liked uh, Joe Budzelik. He was great, and it was great having him on for someone who particularly focuses on mid-majors and mid-majors in the New York City metro area. I thought he was great. And the questions were perfect about asking who's looking good in the area, who does he like, what's interesting in the mid-majors. Again, because it's just not that easy to find. And he spoke about Yale. That was no great discovery. Yale has been really solid for a lot of years. But their wins this year against Loyola, Maryland, Maryland, Colgate are really solid. Tough loss to Weber State. Vermont, you and I have talked about them for a while. Great, great coach. Can't figure out why he's still there. Um, but the interesting one, as you mentioned during the interview, was UMass Lowell. I mean, they, they just moved to Division One, and he's got them, you know, really, really doing well this year and with a very, very interesting lineup. As he said, very upfront, big, tough guys who shoot a high percentage. So I, I thought it was a great interview, and it's great to give them some credit. And I'll tell you, I am now going to make a point of watching Yale in the coming weeks, watching Vermont in the coming weeks, and UMass Lowell. And I think it'll be really fun to watch these three top-tier Northeastern mid-major teams. So they're going to be on my schedule. Yeah, great. And as you mentioned, uh, December 2nd is the Yale versus Vermont. So uh, he was talking about getting up there possibly, but that will be obviously a good game to to see in the mid-major world. Well, Kenny from Rye, let me close with maybe we'll get together that night and watch that game. That might be kind of fun. All right. Excellent. Have a good day. Kenny from Rye, as usual, great comments. And we'll be talking all week about college basketball until our next show. James, thanks very much, and great guest tonight. Thanks again for your time. And folks, let me remind everybody that all of our shows can be found on collegehoopschat.com, and we have accounts with Spotify Podcast and Apple Podcast, and you can follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.